0: Hey, thank you for being here. This is your friend, Princess.
1: And Rodney. We're so happy to have you here with the Millennial Mustard Seed Podcast. Alright, I'm so happy that you guys are back here with me again for another hit episode. Listen, we got Brian Godawa here. Now, most people know Brian from his uh, screenwrites with Hollywood. He He's written a bunch of hit books and produced a bunch of awesome movies over the last 10 plus years. But we get real personal on this episode. We dive into a bunch of really neat topics. We exchange ideas. Um, Brian was a lot of fun to talk with. But I just want to encourage you guys, hang in to the end of this episode. This is a unique one. This is a little bit different than the work I've done before. Now, remember, here with the Millennial Mustard Seed Podcast, there's not a one-way road. There's a lot of different topics I would like to cover as time goes on. We even dive into C.S. Lewis's work, J.R.R. Tolkien. We talk a little bit about how Brian started out this journey and what his life has looked like with the provisions of God over the course of his professional career and so much more. Listen, I'm happy that you guys are here. Let's jump right into the show, y'all. Brian, thank you so much for being here.
2: Thanks for having me, Rob.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, man. You have some really interesting work and I know the audience is going to enjoy this episode. So let me start off by asking you, how did you go down this unique journey, this path that you've been on? How did it kind of start out for you?
2: Well, um, I've always been an artist and, um, I started out as a visual artist in high school and, and as I went into college, I, I was in love with the movies and, um, so, um, you know, my background was, was visual arts and my lo- just love of movies. And, you know, when I when I graduated from college, I, I got my job and basically started studying storytelling
0: mm-hmm. and
2: screenwriting on the side because, you know, I knew that it was a very, very difficult uh, field to get into. You know, a lot of people starving <laughs> as they're trying to break into the business, so to speak. So I had my day job and I I basically taught myself, you know, and and went to all the seminars and bought all the books and studied storytelling and started writing many years ago, and then after a series of years, um, you know, I finally felt sold my first, uh, got my first movie made actually, and that was uh Twindle Wars*, which was in 2001. You know, after 10 years of writing, I guess, or something like that. But and that's how I sort of uh, broke into writing films and such, and and then I've been an independent, uh, you know, filmmaker since then. But you know, I became a Christian, you know when I was in high school as well. So I had always sought to try to honor God with my life, but I didn't understand how to honor Him with my life, with my art, I'm sorry. Um, how those two worked together. And when I was in college, I was struggling with that issue. And I studied, actually, I <laughs> I read a lot of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, but um, studying Francis Schaeffer is what helped me understand how to integrate my faith with my art in a way that wouldn't be propaganda or cheesy, like so much Christian stuff is out there now, you know. And that's what helped me to do that. But then as I, as I studied film, I, I was realizing how storytelling itself, in a sense, it reflects the truth at least. And in some ways it reflects conversion. That is, if you understand how storytelling works, it kind of works like the way conversion works. And I can explain that shortly. But as I realized that, I, I I thought, you know what, I really wanted to help the Christian church to be able to understand movies and television because, you know, as much as, I mean, Christians watch television and movies, just like everybody else. So, Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, I, I I had experience in the church with the two extremes where you're either, you know, oh, there's too much sex and violence, so you throw it all out, or, oh, I'm free in Christ, and I can, you know, I'm not going to be a Pharisee, so I can, I can watch anything, you know? <laughs> and uh, so I, I saw those two extremes, and I called them cultural anorexics and cultural gluttons. Oh, and I wanted goodness. to help those. Yeah, I want to help both those sides. So I wrote my book, Hollywood Worldviews. And there I explained the nature of storytelling and how it connects to the gospel and how it connects to Christian faith in a way to try to help, you know, Christians and other people who believe in the Bible or love the Bible to understand how that works so that they can watch movies with wisdom and discernment rather than sort of in the ignorance. And one of my big claims is that if you just let art or stories wash over you, and you just enjoy them, you imbibe in them entertainment. It changes you in a way that you're not aware of. In a way, that's the the most powerful way that storytelling affects is is with you out even realizing it. So, you know, it can affect your morals, your values, just by watching it. And of course, I don't mean the explicit in in an explicit way, but in the implicit way as well. So. Uh, But if you understand, if you have discernment and you're watching and you're understanding what they're doing with the story and how they're, how they're using story to affect your worldview, then you can at least spot it, recognize it. And if it becomes too much, you can walk away or you can, you know, which I find the truth is, is a lot of times, you know, we we live in a sinful, imperfect world. So there's nothing perfect and there's always going to be something bad and something good in everything, even Christian art, right? And so, you know, you can uh, draw out the good and reject the bad. Um, and then you have to draw your own personal lines as adults for what constitutes, you know, going too far, too much, like pornographies too far, right? You know, to what degree is a movie, you know, a movie can be a secular movie, but have good morality in it. You know, like one of my favorite examples is uh, Jerry Maguire, you know, Jerry Maguire with Tom Cruise. And it's, it's just a secular movie, but it's got such a powerful elevation of marriage and commitment, that in today's society that ultimately rejects Christian marriage, certainly, but, you know, rejects marriage altogether, that's a powerful truth that is worthy, uh, worthy to be appreciated and told, you know, so it doesn't have to be explicitly Christian in order to sort of reinforce a Christian worldview. And that, that was my goal to help, you know, church people to, to be able to have that kind of discernment. And, you know, that was, that was years ago. That's a classic. Now I I wrote that book, Hollywood worldviews when, when not many other Christians had written about movies. And now there's a lot, of course, there's a lot in the market, but my book is still selling well. And it's used in, in a lot of Christian colleges around the country because it, it really does strip down and, and analyze storytelling, uh, and, and how it relates to the Bible. So, yeah. And then, um, in more recent years, I've just, uh, you know, expanded my storytelling. I was writing movies and, um, I be, that became my full-time job, you know, when I, you know, roughly around the time that I made my first movie, but I've recently expanded in the last, you know, 10 years, I've expanded my storytelling into novels and books. I wasn't originally, it, it was interesting because it wasn't deliberate on my part. I, I was never a novelist at heart. I wasn't the person who, I want to write my novel one day. I really wasn't. I kind of did it out of necessity. And what happened was that I had this great script that I thought of, which was a Bible story that no one had done in, in a long time, but also I had done research on it that was really unique. And it was like fantasy, fantasy fantasical type stuff, like wild stuff that you wouldn't imagine, like giants and watchers and all this kind of stuff. And, And I just thought, you know, this would be great. This would be a Hollywood movie. Hollywood would want to make it because it's a big blockbuster. It's got these wild creatures and stuff, uh, but it's also the Bible. And so, you know, Christians and Jews would love it as well. And uh, so I wrote the script and the script is called Noah Primeval. And that was, you know, that was like 11 years ago. And unfortunately, I was going around town and I found out that Darren Aronofsky was making his Noah movie. And I realized, oh, okay, he's going to beat me to the punch with the movie. And I thought, well, what, you know, if his movie comes out, you know I'm gonna feel like I did all this work, and you know uh, I'm gonna be looked down as derivative, you know, so I thought, how can I get my story out before his so that I could sort of have that originality you know and I realized well, it's time to write the novel, so I went ahead and wrote the novel, and that was like I said about ten years ago and and of course, you know the movie turned out to be horror- horrible, and it was it really wasn't at all like my stuff that I had researched, you know, there might have been a few a couple of couple of elements he had in and it there, would like have been much have better watchers,
1: if you but, would have uh <laughs> had control yeah. of that movie i know that you wrote some critiques on it before it even came yeah. out i think and it went viral yeah. and people were catching on they were like wow
2: yeah yeah no that, that was a good example of it, in fact because uh i, I got a hold of the script before the movie was out and i analyzed the script and you know scripts can change from the script to the movie but this didn't at least not in terms of content and basically i yeah. what i it's on my blog and and what I pointed out was that it was an environmentalist parable it was It was an attempt to twist the Bible into uh support of environmental wacko theology, basically, you know, yeah, so you're right, that got a lot of attention, no doubt got me cut off in other circles, but <laughs> I, I went ahead and wrote the novel, and honestly, I thought. So here to, here, here's here's what it is. So I discovered a theological thread in the Bible by reading Michael Heiser's work. This is many years ago before before it became the book that is now called The Unseen Realm. And he wrote about these odd things in the Bible. And the passage that had always concerned me, or no, no, the weirdest passage in the Bible for me had always been Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And that's where it talks about how before the flood, the these uh uh, angelic sons of god came to earth and mated with women and they bore the nephilim which are the giants you know and you're like what is that you know and i used to just sort of uh, you know just well that's weird there's weird stuff in the bible we may we may not ever f- understand you know so just keep moving keep moving you know and uh but heiser actually brought out something that i studied deeper and i found that there's a deep theological thread having to do with the nephilim in the Old Testament, and it has to do with the bloodline of Messiah, and and it just was such a fascinating story. And also, Heiser helped encourage this understanding of the Bible through its ancient Near Eastern text, its its context. And, you know, we so often read the Bible and we don't realize that we're reading it through our own context. But if you seek to understand how they understood things in the in the ancient world, then it makes more sense. And particularly a lot of these weird things. So as I discovered all these weird things and how they're all connected in the Bible, and there's this thread line about the, what I call the war of the seed. And that is the seed of the serpent versus the seed of Eve, which is Christ, <laughs> the messianic seed, right? And so it's a messianic battle through the Bible that I just, I realized that I I needed to tell more than that and the book the, the book was Noah Primeval and it it blew up it became really popular um, on on Amazon you know Kindle that was when, when Kindle was still just starting and so oh, I decided wow. I've got to I've got to tell more more of these stories I well, I could get as many as 3 or 4 books well now I'm up to like what 8 9 10 11 12 13 14 and growing you know um <laughs> but my goal was was to tell retell Bible stories where giants, Nephilim, or watchers appear. And particularly the Chronicles of the Nephilim was the series that focused on the giants and how that related to the Messianic seed. Now, I wanted to stay true to the Bible, but I also wanted to bring in research and sort of push the envelope a little bit in terms of showing the spiritual realm, because we don't really know much about what the spiritual realm looks like. We think we do through experience, but I'm saying biblically, it doesn't doesn't tell us a lot. You know, we see some visions that prophets have, but what's going on in the spiritual realm while the real world around us is going on, we we don't get a lot of pictures about that. We just get glimpses. So I wanted to sort of, you know, add my imagination to that and say, well, if if that's true, what what might it look like? So my stories tend to sh- tend to tell the historical human story and then also the angelic demonic world story going on at the same time, kind of a spiritual war, you know. And so that that was the premise of, of writing those. It grew to the second series, which is the sequel called Chronicles of the Apocalypse. And now I'm writing a third series, Chronicles of the Watchers. And Chronicles of the Watchers is sort of filling in the gaps of Chronicles of the Nephilim. So I'm going back and telling stories that I didn't tell in Chronicles of the Nephilim, like for instance, the story of, of Jezebel. Um, the next novel will be the story of Moses, right? And so you can sort of fit those in there. Yeah. So that's sort of the the big arc of, of everything. And, and that what leads me to where I am now, where, um, I'm still, you know, doing movies, but, um, you know, my focus is more on my, my novels because they've become so successful. It's kind of interesting. They're, <laughs> they're basically action adventure, Bible stories that are action adventure with angels and demons, spiritual warfare, but also romance. I tend to write what I consider to be theological novels, you know? So I like to, I like to embody my theology within the storytelling so that people who aren't as into studying theology, you read my novels, you're going to actually get a lot of theology whether you realize it or not. So, yeah, I like, I like to do that, and that's, that's kind of where I'm at right now.
1: That's awesome because we know the Bible brings these emotions out in people when we read these unique things. I mean, it's an emotional roller coaster. You even look at the Psalms, what David goes through, right? Enemies are after him. He's crying out to God. And then there's like, oh Lord, you've come through and you protected me. And so I love when I hear an artist or a writer just depicting things with a biblical worldview. It's really what the church needs to wake up to, the fact that there's so much more going on here. And that's how young men should be getting excited about this. I mean, they are always willing to go watch the new movies or do discussion forums on, you know, World of Warcraft or whatever the new video game is that has to do with, you know, some type of weird cryptids or creatures, but they don't want to talk about the Bible. And I love that you're bringing that and connecting those realms together, because ultimately that's what my goal is. Now, listen, you answered a couple of my questions already in the first like 10 minutes as I was going along. But I want to ask you, what are your thoughts on, you know, the Matrix and Star Wars and C.S. Lewis work? the chronicles of narnia break that down for me and the audience a little bit there
2: well you bring up the matrix which now is a pretty old movie i guess mm-hmm. uh an old series right but i although they're going to do a, I think they're going to do another sequel soon so oh wow. but yeah i do think the matrix was really powerful because it was very philosophical deliberate philosophical movie but because it was also sci-fi it was able to get away with you know being very heavy heavy-mindedness and such and and, Correct, um, yeah. you know, in fact, I wrote an article analyzing it. You can get that article for free on my website, gadawa.com Just click one of the tabs that says, uh, you know, articles and, you know, free articles or whatever written by me. Um, and you can find it's on, you know, the, the on the philosophy of the matrix and you know the matrix was interesting because the the filmmakers the Wachowski brothers are nietzschean in their philosophy uh, unabashedly nietzschean and and what that means is they're they're ultimately nihilists but they were using the standard hero ju- hero's journey and christ story as a metaphor for their own views on self salvation so you know you've got neo as the christ figure and it's very deliberate and there's all these they draw from all these religions and philosophies and sort of kind of like joseph smith tries to make it make them all sort of saying the same thing. They're all just sort of pointing to how we save ourselves, you know, but they're using, they use a lot of Christ imagery. And quite frankly, there's a lot of imagery that I could relate to in the movie. So there's much about it that I like, but I, that was one of those examples where I had to caution Christians say, you know, one of the problems with the more open-minded contemporary Christians is that they try to find the gospel in everything, even if it's not there, you know, and look, I'm all for yeah, I'm all for finding the positive in things. And sometimes we, you know, people miss good things in a movie because they're so consumed by seeing the bad. I acknowledge that. I, I get that. I make that point myself. But sometimes they're so eager to justify movies by saying the gospel. Yeah, see how he he sacrificed for that person. You know, like Jesus did. Now there's there's a whole journey, a hero's journey that requires sacrifice in there. It doesn't necessarily make it a Christ story, right? But the Neo story in Matrix clearly was a Christ story, but it was a subversive Christ story. That is, they used Christ imagery to subvert it and make it mean something else. And that's another powerful element of storytelling that I talk a lot about to churches and in my books and stuff. In fact, I, I've written another another book called The Imagination of God, and I explain things like subversion, how, how God himself uses storytelling in the Bible, and how he you know, and how storytelling can subvert can um communicate truth through subtle means and, and understanding that better, you know you know you mentioned the Chronicles of Narnia, and I didn't like this series at all. I mean, the first movie was okay, but I didn't really care for the way they they made those movies myself, so you know, I did love the Lord of the Rings, um I'm a fan of that, but I think what Tolkien and Lewis understood was that the nature of storytelling is much deeper than just the shallow sort of. Didactic purposes. Like he, he, the, the biggest problem with most, most Christians uh, who don't get it or uh, who don't understand art is like you'll watch these Christian movies and they feel like they have to be very explicit. They, you know, everything has to be clear and 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 not not no ambiguity in terms of their message and their meaning because they it's it's well it's from good intentions. It's the intention of well if people don't understand then they're not going to hear the message. They're not going to hear the redemption. They're not going to understand it. So we've got to be clear. We've got to spell it out. That kind of thing. Uh, but they also, uh, you know, they also draw from a lot of cultural baggage. Like, you know, you've got to have a pastor in a church. You've got to pray the prayer to accept Jesus, you know, that kind of stuff. And they don't understand that. They, <laughs> they tend to see stories like, I'm a storyteller, so I focus on there. It, but it applies to all art. They tend to see entertainment or creativity as a means to an end. In other words, it's just uh, a movie is just a dramatized sermon, so they see art as another means of giving sermons, and that's where they fail because they don't understand that art itself communicates in ways different than sermons do. Sermons do have to be more explicit, or they are. I don't know if they have to be, but they certainly are in terms of a genre of communication of ideas, right? But a story embodies or incarnates ideas in a way that uh, that preaching cannot. It's more existential. You're seeing humans live out their lives and make their choices. And the problem is is that real life is not black and white. Real life is not always clear. It's often ambiguous. It's often confusing. And to be true to that is to, to be willing to allow that certain amount of ambiguity, even though you may have a distinct message or meaning that you, I, I always do you know, behind all my stories. But I allow the ambiguity and I allow some of the questioning because that's the nature of how good storytelling, good art works. It allows um, other viewpoints to have their say to interact, um, but but the you know it's sort of like um, the embodiment or the incarnation of the idea of of the argument you're making. It's embodied rather than preached, and so because of that, you know that's why you see a lot of preachy, didactic Christian movies, and that don't. I watch them, and I. They don't ring true to me, and I'm a Christian. I should I should be agreeing with them, but that's because they don't under, they don't understand the nature of storytelling. But of course, Lewis, what I'm getting as Lewis and Tolkien understood that they had differences of approaches themselves. But and I write about this in my book, The Imagination of God, where I had an experience that I found out C.S. Lewis had as well. And it, it always seems to be whenever I discover something profound, I find out C.S. Lewis already said something about it, or you know, already had that experience himself. And and what that was, was that I was always driven by a strong apologetics, strong philosophy, logic in my faith and in my life. And this is a good thing, you know, um, God is Logos, you know, but, but he's not just Logos. He's not just Logos. He's always also imago. He's image. And Jesus is the incarnation of the Logos, right? So the incarnation is the existential image on earth. And so you got to have both sides of that. And I, and I think that understanding that is where we, we can connect with humanity in a deeper way and carry someone with us into the story, into the, the journey and can change them. But if you, if you feel you have to be explicit about everything and spell it out, people are going to smell that they're going to react. They're not going to like it. And even yeah. if they agree with you, they're not gonna like it, right? Yeah, there's a there's a whole and of course Lewis and Tolkien understood that and and oh I I'm sorry, I got off track. I was talking about Lewis and, and so Lewis had also had that, you know, heavily intellectual faith. I got to the point in my life where I just felt like I'd intellectualized so much. And I'm not talking about like what charismatics say, oh yeah, you gotta be more emotional and cry and speak in tongues. No, no. What I mean is intellectual versus imagination, meaning. That yeah God has logic to him he He does have some truths that are very systematic, but if you read the bible you real- you have to realize that only about twenty percent of it is propositional truth, you know these propositions about facts or truth or or whatever, and eighty percent of it is story, art, poetry, right well, yeah so there's like
1: two hundred different formats of speech in the Bible, right,
2: yeah. So my point is, is that, um, I'd intellectualized my faith and I kind of felt a, you know, felt a a deadness to that, you know, but when I started through this, um, through work similar to Heiser's uh, and before, uh, I started seeking to understand the Bible within its ancient Near Eastern context. And, and when you do, you start to see they saw the world differently than we do, and you stop imposing your own categories. And yes, that's where you start yes. to embrace the theology of imagination that is actually in the Bible, meaning God uses imagination more than he uses uh, reason or proposition to communicate his truth. Now, hear me clearly. I'm not. I'm not a postmodern in the sense of I'm not saying he doesn't. He rejects logic, and we should just embrace emotion and imagination. No, I'm not saying that. it's both and. But my point is, is the the imagination side has been neglected by my tradition of faith. You know, evangelicalism. You know, Reformed, that kind of a thing. Um, the, the Protestantism and such, and and so we've we've neglected the imagination. So we've lost out on that. They should be equally equally ultimate just like they are equally ultimate in Christ and that's and I had revelation you know and it it opened me up look I'd always been imaginative in my art but when I started to understand how to apply my imagination to my faith then like like uh Francis Schaeffer said then it's the christian whose imagination can fly to the stars right and that's what happened to me and that's what happened to me with my noah primeval book where you know, I was able to apply that. And I thought, I, I thought Christians were going to reject it because it was pushing the envelope. You know, you're playing with the Word of God, but I, I wasn't. I was just being consistent with the way they wrote too. You know, and uh, but I've been surprised to, and and to admit that uh, I haven't been attacked by many Christians for that. They've most most Christians have gotten it and they appreciate it but back to lewis thing so lewis had that same experience but his was more like you know he'd been doing all these apologetics and rational arguments and he does all these debates and then one one day he had a debate with a, a and M, uh aj anschom i think her name is anyway she's a catholic theologian so she's a believer but she, you know, she demolished some of his arguments of god for the existence of god and he admitted that she was right but he, and he said that that's when he realized that there's a difference between arguments for the existence existence of god and the existence of God, right? And that he had relied so much on rationality that he had, you know, he had kind of lost touch with that existential side. And it was shortly after that time period where he focused on his fiction. He's, it's not that, it's not that he completely changed and didn't write anything more rational. I'm just saying that's when his, his imagination began to open up. And and that's roughly shortly after that was when uh, he started, you know, doing the chronicles of the Narnian chronicles, right? And so that was when when I f- discovered that he went through that experience. I was really overjoyed because I'm like, "That's what I went through." But of course, he beat me to it again, you know. And um, <laughs> yeah, so that's where I am today. And and I, I appreciate those guys because they understood how you incarnate truth into your stories. Whether the movies, you know, the Chronicles and the Narnia movies fulfill that, I don't know. To be honest, I, I I read the Space Trilogy of Lewis, but I never read the Chronicles. You know, the Children's Stories. I, I never. I read Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, but I just didn't get into it as much, you know? Well, that's the Um, one that I I
1: loved. And, you know, as a, as a young man come growing up and, you know, all the different things going on in the world, messages, confusion, chaos, this and that you come across the movie. I had, I wasn't a Christian at the time. Didn't know it was based on Christian content, but I'm telling you what, as a young man watching the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, it affected me significantly to see Aslan lay down his life. But then like, You know, he comes back and he roars right before they go kill the white witch. I mean, that that imagery, that storytelling, what it did to my young mind at the time was so significant. And I know there's a generation of people out there that could agree. Now, listen, what you've already done so far for my mind on this episode is phenomenal because you're saying a lot of things and connecting dots for me that I kind of have like I feel a little bit, but didn't really know how to express it or maybe cover that chasm. So, I know this is going to be great for the audience. I did want to ask you, who is yeah. your greatest influencer?
2: Well, I've had many influences throughout the years. And, um, but I would think, you know, my, the first one that I go back to in terms of uh, that affected me probably the most, uh, probably because it was the first and it was the most effect on everything that I am, both uh, as a thinker, philosopher, philosopher, uh, f- you know, I love philosophy and theology but i also am an artist and such um and i love apologetics too right so i've kind of got that bipolar <laughs> sort of mind i love both <laughs> r- a rigorous argumentation but i just love to go let go into the world of the imagination and and those two those two worlds are often at at, at odds with each other lewis would talk about the you know the the dark dark uh ambiguity of, of imagination versus reason, you know, the clarity of reason. But then he realized that, like I said, ultimately that clarity doesn't necessarily mean it's better or more truthful, actually.
1: Who <laughs> was your, your greatest influence?
2: Francis Schaefer. So I was in college and, you know, like I said, I'd been an artist and I'd been a Christian and I was, I didn't understand how those two things worked, fit together. So they tended to be separate worlds. And I also tended to have a view of um, secular and sacred, meaning, you know, in my life, there's secular things, which is like, you know, my art and living life and doing the dishes and whatever. Uh, and then there's the sacred things, which is prayer, Bible reading, you know, and the Reformation really helped break through that and, and and help people to realize that, that, you know, all aspect of life is holy and unto the Lord. You know, you can wash dishes unto the Lord. You know, if you're a plumber, you can do your plumbing unto the Lord. You don't have to just be a content creator or a writer to do that you know and and what does that mean and how do you do that? Well, that's what Francis Schaeffer helped me to begin to understand and then as I explored more of the reformed thinking on that it it made more sense but and he also was the first Christian who would really try to to address the the history of the arts and how that it's driven by a worldview um and you know of course he became part of the uh, Labrie, you know this sort of intellectual house of of people that also include Included another one of my favorite guys, which is uh, H.R. Ruchmacher, and his book, um, uh, Modern Art and the Death of a Culture. And he took it one step further um, in terms of literally art history. And so that's when it began to open my mind. And at the same time, he was talking philosophy. So he was integrating philosophy, theology, art. And that was who I was. And that was my life. And so he was probably the biggest influence, you know, of course you grow, you you move on to other writers and authors and influencers, you know, th- through life. But he was my seminal influence that to this day, I still, you know, I still treasure and and am grateful for, um, all that he brought, you know, and a lot of people my generation do. I mean, he might be forgotten now, but, but not to those of my generation, you know? So I think another significant influence was, would be, uh, Greg Bonson or, by way, uh, or shall we say um, Cornelius Van Til, who was a reformed apologist uh, by way of Greg Bonson. And um, that's changed my life in many ways too, but it was more apologetics and, and more the rational side of things, you know? Nowadays I tend to prefer to create art than to philosophize about it or talk about it, you know? It's okay for me to talk to you here now, but I'm just saying, for my, yeah. my own personal time, I don't want to read books on art. And, you know, I, I want I have to
1: the audacity and, to ask fundamental questions about the art, <laughs> right? It's like, yeah, uh, I get it. What can a mustard seed of faith do?
2: I think the whole of the Christian life is, is in a way, it reflects that mustard seed growth, you know? In fact, that's, that is a metaphor that I use a lot of the kingdom of God. And and how I, I seek to live my life for the kingdom of God in everything I say and do, and all my work, I you know I want to point towards truth or towards the kingdom of God in some way. Sure, I can give examples, you know, that people or some of these authors who I read their stuff, and then over time you change your it changes your life. I got dozens of those, you know, N.T. Wright, Michael Heiser, you know, Francis Schaeffer, but. I think the most important element of that metaphor to me is, is we need to understand that that's how the kingdom of God is. But we are, because we live in a world of sensationalism and extreme polarity, where you know social media is polarizing people more and more, it's it's tended to feed the apocalyptic mindset in a lot of Christians. And so they tend to see, you know, we're living in the end times, you know, it's, it's all going to go bad and the Antichrist is going to come up. So Christians have this sort of mindset of apocalyptic mindset where um, they don't really value the present and the real world that they're in because what they're looking for is the evil that's to come, you know, exactly, exactly, uh, or, or the rapture, you know, they're looking to be raptured out. So, so they don't have a high value of this world and they don't have a high value of the kingdom of God because they what they think is god's kingdom is going to fail on this earth and the antichrist is going to take over it and take over and you know kill most most of the good people anyway and then christ is going to save us with a cataclysmic return okay but in terms of in in history that means the kingdom of god does not have victory you know, you know, and and think about that. So you're obviously you're probably picking up the fact that I don't agree with that left behind sort of viewpoint of things that end times things that a lot of Christians, are. you know, the vaccine is the mark of the beast. Everything that happens now, it just justifies their conspiracy theories about the end times. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is that is a. A denigration of the kingdom of God. You're saying the kingdom of God is not a mustard seed that's going to grow and be the largest tree in the garden. You're denying that the kingdom of God is leaven that starts out little and fills the whole up a dough. You're denying that Daniel's um, uh, messianic rock that you know begins as a rock and grows to be a mountain to fill the earth. That's Daniel two, right? That's the kingdom of God on earth in history. That's what the Bible says. And my point is, is we need to have a a positive general understanding of the, of the kingdom of God that way, rather than we're going to all be defeated and, and and we're going to be saved, flown out of here by a rapture or something, you know, rather than what the Bible says, which is God's kingdom grows and grows. And we are a part of that, but it takes time and time is growth. And the other element is Christians tend to have this mindset of the, I don't know, you know, 15 minutes of fame, you know, like, you know, I want to be viral. I want to be important. I want to be significant, you know. I want to be valuable. And so they think that that comes from fame in some way, you know, whether it's, you know, viral videos or whatever, you know. Um uh but they're they're afraid to just be a worker in the vineyard or a builder of that temple. The temple is the body of Christ on earth, right? and just get about your work build that temple get people saved and discipled and you're one little brick in that wall of the new temple but it's not it's not done yet it's going to take time and you're going to come and go and die and you may not be some you may not have some important significant uh fame you know you may not have your 15 minutes of fame but that's not what the kingdom of god is about the kingdom of god is about being a part of that growing temple one I'm happy to be a one brick of many in that new temple of god that he's building right now in the body of christ ephesians 1 says that right and you need to be content to be that knowing that we are building for the future and that's you know un- approaching your life in the kingdom of god that way rather than cataclysmically like because we want every you know we want instant gratification we want everything to happen quickly we want everything solved immediately like like the internet like you know like electronics but the truth is is it's a long term kingdom of god is a long term thing And, and so having that mindset helps you to be work, be a worker in that kingdom in a way that's, that's impactful, but God sees it and God is happy with you. Well done thou good and faithful servant, because you discipled people and you built the kingdom of God rather than, oh, we're all going to be raptured out anyway. So let's, it's all just going to hell. So let's just talk about prophecy and whatever, talk about how evil everything is, you know? And so, yeah, that's, that's sort of the, um, when you say mustard seed, you know, maybe I don't I didn't have a specific example to give you in my own life, but I think it's a worldview. It's a worldview understanding that I think Christians are lacking in these in this day of apocalyptic polarization.
1: You were the perfect person to ask that question because um I just love um the rawness and the realness that you brought from your perspective. what does Jesus say to us? He's like, Listen, love the Lord your God with all your mind, your heart, and your soul. Love your neighbors yourself, right? Yeah. I write a little bit of poetry. When the educated speak, many do listen, yet the simple are busy helping their neighbor. And it, like, hit me because... If we're loving our neighbors and we're out there actually being that kingdom builder, our hands are forming the block because our actions are going to follow our belief. And if I say I believe something, my words can be wherever they want to be. Right. But people will look at our lives. They will look at the fabric of our lives. I think that's the greatest thing I have going for me is my testimony of what Jesus has done, because I was a completely different person in my early 20s and how I grew up. There were some definitely big ups and downs. Um, some, some pretty traumatic things happened, um, with our family in, in my younger years. And people see me now, they're like, Rod, I don't even get it. I don't understand. And it's funny because a friend of mine, um, contacted me, an old friend, an old acquaintance, and he's trying to argue it out with me and tell me, well, how did I make these choices and get better with, and and kept trying to rob me from giving the glory to Christ. And I'm like, listen, man, I repented like uh, Abraham Lincoln says, do good, feel good, do bad, feel bad. Well, I felt really bad. And the only good I could do was accept <laughs> the payment paid on the cross and understand. Listen, I'm at fault here when when the ball's in my court, I mess it up. Something always goes wrong. So, Lord, I really need you. You know, I gave my life to the Lord in a courtroom in Norristown, Pennsylvania, right outside of Philadelphia about six years ago, but that's for another place and another time. I'm just a simple man, but I do understand the fabric of these certain things that when the Holy Spirit is tugging us emotionally, you know, like the scripture says, those who are the sons of God are led by the spirit of God. And we're going to be known by the fruit of our life. We cannot fake that fruit. I want to ask you, have you ever had a supernatural encounter? Was there anything that you've ever experienced, whether it be a dream, seen something, experienced something that you can't explain?
2: Not that I'm aware of, not, not in the big sense, but certainly in the providential sense, you know, lots of those. I mean, I think we all do, you know, uh, escapes from death, you know, things like that. But I mean, you know, nothing, nothing that you would say like a supernatural type of visual thing or whatever, or experience like that. No, not really. And I mean, you know, I've seen some evil people, but I don't think I've ever seen demon possessed people, you know? Uh, (laughs) but, uh, uh. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. i kind of a boring life when it comes to that, that angle <laughs> when it comes to the supernatural. So, but, but like I say, though, providentially God, God, listen, God's providing for my wife and I throughout our, all our life. We're amazed at the blessings at the things we do not deserve at the things that he provides for us that he makes, you know, it's like, like I said, it's not about it's not about to me. It's not about this. I don't seek sensations. I don't seek miracles. I don't seek that stuff. I don't think we should. I don't think that's what life is about. It's about seeking God, not miracles. So, so I can experience some fantastical thing. It's like no, I seek to know and love God, <laughs> and I see Him. I see Him in every day. I mean, the way things work out, you know. And and look, I'm not saying like, oh yes. Lord, thank you for helping me find the spoon. Okay, I don't mean that, but I mean, I know. Uh, in life, you know, the, the, the different ways that we have, uh, we've been protected. My wife and I, for example, just in, in, um, this recent, uh, um, year, you know, a lot has changed for us, you know, and, um, with the way he provided for us to be able to, so, so we're right in the middle of COVID, you know, COVID's ending and, and the election's coming up and the world's, you know, blowing up and, and we, we realized we needed to move and, we were in a bad situation in in California and we up and moved to Texas and it happened super quick. We sold our house, our condo in three days and we were in Texas within a month. And even before escrow was cleared and even before Kim had a job and, Uh, you know, I'm a writer, so I can work from anywhere, but you know, it's like all these things, God just provided and made it work out. And we had some obstacles here and there, but it all, it all, it all worked out and and we see God's hand in it. So we tend, I tend to see God's hand of providence more than anything. That is sovereign. I mean, and yeah, and yeah, of course he's supernatural too. And there, and there might be those things and miracles can happen, but I'm just saying, you know, I see his, his providential sovereignty you know, in every day of life, you know, Mm -hmm. the fact that I'm still breathing and and that I I got the most amazing woman who who still loves me. I mean, these are the things that are, are God's sovereign blessings that blow away in my mind. I'd rather have that than a parted sea, red sea. I'm serious, man. I'd rather have all those good providential things. Now, of course, if God does also provide a miracle. That's great, and I, you know, I've had people who have, you know, who've had that, you know, in terms think, of feelings and stuff like that. But
1: I think that's awesome, and I love asking that question to people from different backgrounds because it, really all of it is important, and, and we shouldn't just be building an inventory of excitement based upon did you see a light in the sky or you know uh, have some type of visitation. Yeah. I mean, that would be just annoying and a little irate if we just continued only on that. I think there's a yeah. true balance. This God that we wish to worship. And he's got this story about how he's gonna redeem us. Hey, the seed war, you know, you're gonna strike at the heel, you're gonna crush its head. Then we see all these highs and lows of God chasing down our heart. I do like reading Ezekiel or Revelation four, seven through nine, you know, when we see these cherubim or maybe it's a seraphim yeah. that has multiple different heads covered in eyes and wrapped in wings. That's exciting, but that is not glorious. the height of what we look for when we say, Hey, I'm a Christian. I am exercising Christ-like characteristics because greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world, not anything good of my own, but because God loved me, right? And he loved the world enough to to lay down himself so that there could be this process of sanctification that takes time. I know it's definitely a lengthy process for each one of us. And none of us are exempt from the temptations, the trials, the testings that come with this temporary life you know, we're, we're, we're visitors, we're strangers passing through. Sometimes people look at me like I have two heads and I'm like, good you're proving to me that by the things <laughs> that I believe in, you know, <laughs> uh, that I'm doing that I am really a stranger here that, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not one of the ones that uh, yeah. I don't want to be of. I would love to spark people like the apostle Paul says, spark each other to jealousy of a good work, not, not jealousy. And this is why you know, precision in our terms is so important. And that's what I'm learning. I think my aspiration uh, definitely outweighs my education when it comes to this stuff, but loving our neighbors as ourselves, right? How can we push people to go further with that? When we see a world just like it is today with 2020 behind us, now we're looking and going, oh my gosh, it's, it's revealing a lot of the true colors of corporations, uh, our government and people. I mean, I'm I know my neighborhood here has been off the hook. Uh, we've had all kinds of crazy stuff happen. I mean, we had an active shooter last year on the street and this isn't a bad part of town. I live in a pretty, pretty nice part of town, but uh, you're seeing the worst come out of people. So I don't usually talk about this stuff, especially on the air, but I do make a special, you know, thing within myself where I say, I'm going to do for that person, what I would desire for them to do for me, whether it be clean off their car, when there's snow or shoveled or walked, even the little things. I think that If we put half of the emotion that we put into disagreeing, arguing and pointing out each other's flaws, if we took one tenth of the energy that we as a whole um, use to complain or disagree and we put that into our local neighborhood and said, listen, what can I actually do here to meet a need? When Jesus says, listen, take care of the fatherless and the widows, truly those who are widowed, man, you're doing right? If I return and I come like a thief in the night and I crack the sky like a supernova and pull back the veil and that's what you're doing, what does he say? Good job. We're well done, good and faithful servant, right? Um, yeah. And that is something that I really want to just solidify. I know w- with the show here, I've interviewed a bunch of people. We talk about a little bit of everything. It's not it's not a one-way road here, but I always like to take the time to just remind the audience. Most people may... uh. Uh, stop listening when I ramble and go on these topics. But I want to use this platform to express what I think is is ultimately at, at the end of the day, the most important thing. And it's, listen, we just got to learn to forgive each other and love each other and bear each other's burdens. And then when you get the opportunity, you know, to to do these fun things in life, whether it be writing books or enjoying time with your family or, or you know, just meditating on the provisions of God or. If uh, you're allowed to travel, take a vacation or any of that stuff, that, that's great. But let's always draw back to that focus. Let's recenter ourselves and and be reminded of what Christ says. Those red letters are so important. But man, mm-hmm. you were a pleasure to talk with. Thank you for uh, also letting me go into my little rant there, because that's some of the bigger emotional things that that move inside of me where I just like, you guys, please wake up <laughs> You know, let's not have a a disgust or an anger for each other for no reason. I don't know why there's so much division, but you're a wealth of knowledge, man. I just can't wait to uh, dig into some of your work. I know I'm still working on Derek Gilbert's book and Drew Graffia's book right now, but you are next on the list. Do you have a recommendation of where I can start? I obviously don't have time to read 14 novels, but can you give me a good place to jump in and kind of, okay, this is good, you know?
2: Well, for your listeners as well, um, you know, Gadawa.com, that's my name, that's my website. Everything's there in terms of getting information about me and my movies and my books. And, you know, you can learn a little bit about everything, some cool stuff there, some some, um, free articles and free artwork and stuff. It's really cool. I made it a really cool website. But nevertheless, you know, you can go there to find out more information about me. But if you want to check out my books and stuff, as you know, uh, Amazon has great descriptions you can just go right to Amazon uh you know plug in my name and uh all my books are on audiobook, paperback and ebook and um if you're interested in actually you know checking out you know how how, how does this fiction this bible fiction work and it, it, supernatural war, romance, action adventure it sounds interesting you know, you could just start with the the first book in the series is Noah primeval. And if you like it, you know, you'll, you'll take the other, read the other books, but I mean, each book in a way is it's, it's its own, you know, book. I mean, the, the second book is Enoch primordial, and that's a story about Enoch. Then I got a story uh-huh. about Abraham. I got a story about David. And, you know, if you're interested in, in, uh, reading that sort of supernatural angle, you know, just start with Noah primeval. That would be a good. One. Or, um, my most recent novel is Jezebel, and that's very relevant to today's world, you know. Um uh you can start there because it's the same worldview, the same paradigm. And like I say, each story can stand on its own, but if you do read the series, you will see there's an overarching story going on with, they do as fit well, together. with the supernatural side. So start with that one. Or if you're interested in the more like the theological stuff, you know, uh, my my book, Hollywood World of Views, is about watching movies, and and you get that—that's uh, all on Amazon as well. And my—if you want to talk about or read more about my sort of my aesthetic, which is my philosophy of art, <laughs> which is the stuff that we were talking about today, <laughs> incarnation, subversion, how does God use storytelling to uh, persuade people? That would be my book, *The Imagination of God*. And then, actually, I wrote a second book called *God Against the Gods*, which shows it shows how God Himself uses the pagan imagination and redeems it. Uh, but those are those are the books on the arts and, and the movies and and such, you know. And and um, you know, I also have some books on eschatology. It's sort of relevant to what we're talking about here today. End times Bible prophecy. It's not what they told you. That's another book. And and that would be a, a book that uh, gives a very different view about the end times and what then left behind and what most people, Christians are used to, you know. Um, but it's rooted in. It's nothing new. It's actually rooted in other scholars like R.C. Sproul and N.T. Wright and other great. Um, uh, scholars of the past, you know? So yeah, I just, you know, if you go to the Gade- Brian Gadawa author page, you know, on, on Amazon, you'll see all the different options and stuff. So it all depends on what you're interested in, you know, to start with, but those are some good starting points.
1: Very good. That's awesome. Now this is, I'm assuming going to be a little more of a brain teaser for the audience. I'm pretty sure you're going to know this. Who's the oldest man in the Bible? Methuselah. And oh, he dies before his father. What's that? Uh, Methuselah, right, he's recorded in the Old Testament as the oldest man in the Bible, yeah. and yeah. he dies before his father. His father was Enoch.
2: Oh, right. That's true
1: because Enoch <laughs> it's just a little brain teaser. Right. I thought it, no, it was good. a little that's fun good. way to get a laugh out of it. Um, but actually,
2: Elijah didn't either, so... <laughs> this is where it gets interesting.
1: And your Jesus uh, statement there is ultimately correct. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Man, you're a blast, dude. I really enjoyed this. I hope um, later this year I can have you back for a part two. Um, Sure. We'll be praying for you guys. I'm glad that you got out of California and you're in Texas. I'm in southeastern Pennsylvania. If you're ever over this way, man, you shoot me an email and (laughs) uh, we'll get a good cheesesteak. I'll take you to Della Sandro's.
2: Sounds good.
1: I'm going to close out. I'm just going to read one or two very small little poem pieces here. A simple man doesn't care what you wear when you sit with him. He only cares if you've bathed or not. (laughs) (laughs) The way of a man is always changing, like the weather. You can know the season, but you can't always know when it's going to rain. The meek are among the greatest of all. They display self-confidence through their self-control. And the wild man can't tame himself, and doom is his shadow. So freedom true. of speech is for all. Yet a man who can't listen doesn't deserve to be heard. Brian Godawa, man, once again, it's been an honor. I'm um, I'm so thankful that you decided to join me and come on for an episode. Is there any last words you want to share with the audience before we uh, end the show here?
2: Yeah, freedom. <laughs> the last line of of William Wallace and Braveheart. We are oh, now in a man. world of fascist rising fascism, and it's it's getting worse. And um, people like me are going to be ultimately probably canceled. And and uh, or I, I I don't like using the word cancel culture. I prefer to call it what it is: political persecution. So there's a lot of persecution that is rising right now. And so um, we've got to we've got to stay strong. And and please, righteous men, my prayer is that righteous men will rise up in this generation to do what we need to do, what's right to stand against fascism, tyranny and uh, the evil that is, that is fighting to destroy us.
1: Very well said. And I couldn't agree more. Well, that's it. That's the show. Everybody. If you found this episode to be helpful, if you learned something new, it encouraged you, it made you laugh or dig deeper into the word of God. I ask that you would share this with a friend coming to you from Southeastern Pennsylvania. God bless America and good night.
0: They're scared of this Corona, because they don't know him. Get you spend time with him, then you would get the norm. him. He gives us everything to get the know him. I'm, up and personal. i take advantage of it every day. That's how I know him. People scared to come my side because of the Corona. They must not know the king, and this is what I know of. People scared to come my side because of the Corona. They must not know the King, and this is what I know of. People scared to come my side because of the Corona. They must not know the king, out because of the corona they must not know the king and this is what i know of i'ma it out because to me it's all a wind the corona got you sitting in the house committing sin all the people of this earth like they make making a lot, lot of excuses not a couple say they in love and blame it on them they think the brother's stupid but now nah, i'm not stupid. I'm just here to serve him. I just tell her how it is. If you don't like it, then you gotta make a change. First it starts with repentance. After baptism, then you receive the Holy Ghost. The corona ain't taking over. No Holy Ghost, don't let your mind fool ya. Satan is a liar. He knows his time is short and he's destined for the fire. I gotta spit the fire. And no, I'm not retired. I'm just getting started. So how can I retire? CEO status, but I'm not chasing fame Boston the music you know we come of the, they must not know the king this is what I know of. People
1: scared Don't tell me you're still here. If you are still here, you are awesome. And have a great day. <laughs>